11 years ago today, on February 11, 2011, 30 years of dictatorship came to an end in the Arab world's largest state. President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt, who had ruled with the full support of the US and the EU, resigned after 18 days of mass protests. With his departure, Egypt experienced the most dramatic and turbulent three years of its contemporary political history. Those years ended in a new dictatorship that currently rules Egypt at great human cost. My name is Mona Lobeshi, and I'm a scholar of Middle East politics. My new book presents a coherent account of what happened in those years, titled Bread and Freedom, Egypt's Revolutionary Situation. It's published by Stanford University Press. The title is taken from the mass protest movement's main slogan, calling for bread, freedom, and social justice. The revolutionary situation of the subtitle is the book's master concept. I argue that it helps us make sense of the extremely confusing events of those three years from 2011 to 2014. Consider just this bare bones list. From 2011 to 2014, Egypt experienced two military coups, five governments, two founding elections, three constitution writing assemblies, three constitutional referenda, thousands of mass demonstrations and local protests, and 17 instances of extreme state violence against citizens, causing over 3,000 deaths. Given the seeming chaos and continuous instability, no wonder most writers on Egypt see it as a failed political transition. One narrative emphasizes poor leadership. It blames Egypt's civilian politicians and activists for fighting bitterly amongst themselves instead of working out an agreement on democratic fundamentals. Another story focuses on the military generals who seized power when Mubarak resigned. It argues that the generals never intended to allow democracy, but simply bided their time for three years and then struck at the right moment, overthrowing Egypt's first elected president in 2013. If we follow these narratives, Egypt's upheaval becomes a three-cornered game between military generals, secular politicians, and their Islamist adversaries. Dozens of crucial events and players simply drop out. These common narratives are a caricature of what happened in Egypt after the fall of the dictatorship. The concept of a revolutionary situation brings back in the many pivotal players and institutions, but without being a tedious blow-by-blow -blow of every single thing that happened in those years. A revolutionary situation is defined as a sudden shift in power over the state that creates extraordinary threats and opportunities for every stakeholder, including old elites from the dictatorship. It tells us to expect plenty of turbulence as many groups act quickly to defend their positions or acquire new kinds of power. This framework helps me make three moves. First, it does away with the myth that we can explain Egypt's politics or any country's politics as a three-player game. I build back into the story the crucial role of state institutions besides the military. For example, one of the most important players in Egypt's revolution were the judges and the country's three different court systems. Through their rulings and even direct political actions, they completely reshaped the political arena on more than one occasion. We can't understand Egypt's politics both before and after the revolution unless we take into account the role of activist judges. The second move is to investigate why Islamist and secular politicians were so divided. Defining them as Islamist and secular is misleading, suggesting that their division is ideological. Instead, I show that it was their different political DNA that set them up for conflict. For example, Egypt's largest Islamist organization, the Muslim Brothers, have a lot of experience in election canvassing and campaigning. 
Naturally, they wanted quick elections as the best way to organize politics after the dictatorship. They won a plurality in the first parliamentary elections, and they also won Egypt's first free and fair presidential elections. In 2012, the Muslim Brothers leader, Mohamed Morsi, became Egypt's first ever civilian president. But secular political parties had no election experience and no nationwide name recognition. So they preferred delaying elections and wanted instead a power sharing scheme that would guarantee them representation. However, the secular political parties did have one powerful tool that the Muslim Brothers lacked, control over media. Their media outlets portrayed the Muslim Brothers as wolves in sheep's clothing, using elections not for democracy, but to establish a theocracy. This relentless negative messaging worked. When President Morsi was toppled by the military in July 2013, just a year into his four-year term, the coup was supported and even actively cheered by broad sectors of the public. The point is that these divisions were not because of different views on religion and politics, but because the players were positioned very differently in Egypt's political landscape. Some embraced majority rule, while others wanted minority rights. The divisions among Egypt's factions tells us something important about new democracies. Political groups have very different chances of doing well in a suddenly expanded free political environment. Some will want competitive elections because they know they'll get the votes, but some will turn away from elections and look for other ways to remain politically viable. The third move I make in the book is to challenge the idea that what happened was bound to happen. Many people within and outside Egypt reason backwards from the current military dictatorship and say that democracy had no chance to begin with or that Egyptians simply botched their revolution. This may be emotionally satisfying, but it avoids the hard work of mapping the conflicts and dilemmas that emerge when an autocracy is suddenly brought down. 